Welcome to Matter of Fat, a body positive podcast with Midwest sensibilities. Hi, I'm Kat Palavoda, a local fat feminist, shop owner, and living for Fat Girl Fall. I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Soraya Bogani. Hi, I'm Soraya. I'm a fat, multiracial, Minneapolitan millennial who relishes that back-to-school energy. It's a clean slate and anxiety all rolled up into one. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> We're here to talk about the cultural politics of fat bodies in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the greater Midwest. Episode 10, season two sure is alive and well. You're living it. We're living it. Let's get into it, starting with the, the fat, fat dish. dish. It's time for the fat dish, where we share or dish about what's going on in our community and personally. We are really excited about this one and probably will not stop talking about it till this epic event happens. On October 12th, Flyover presents Lindy West and Samantha Irby. Grab your tickets. We're a sponsor. It's going to be an incredible event. Mm-hmm. We've been keeping you updated, but are so excited to do our first ever live podcast during the Radical Health Alliance's Rad Fat Adventure Camp this September. I personally loved facets of my camp experiences and can't wait to see some of you there. Same, same, same. Business birthdays are coming up. So we're celebrating two years at Cake on Saturday, October 5th. We'll have a store-wide sale and cake pops, so y'all gotta come through. Oh my god. Okay, those cake pops are no joke, y'all. Don't sleep on us. I remember when Cake opened and I took like five home. There's just like (laughs) double fisting cake pops walking down the street. They barely lasted a day and a half, and I kept finding sprinkles all over the apartment, or like a ribbon was just like on the floor on the way to my bedroom. I don't even know. They're so amazing. Shout out to Talia from Speck of Crumbs Bakery. That's where I always order them from. So go to Cake's birthday or hit up Talia. Also, uh, you said businesses. Who else are we celebrating? (gasps) Yes, Nancy's Food Truck, K-Tall Street Eats, which you'll remember from episode two, is celebrating its first business birthday on September 22nd at Ladonia, where it all began. Hope you go grab some pupusas. I know we're going to try to. Mm -hmm. And finally, like we mentioned last episode, we'll be at WNYC Studios Work It Women's Podcast Festival in October. So if any of our listeners or fellow podcasters will be there please let us know we would love to connect yes that's honestly so much great dish and now i'm excited to hear about what's going on with you saraya mm-hmm. after a short break can you believe how fast this year is going it seems like just yesterday we were kicking off the podcast and now here we are We love doing this podcast, and we really appreciate you. Yeah, you! It's so cool to know that we're not existing in an echo chamber, and that the dish and discourse that exist in this small little audio corner of the world extends to your life and our community. And, you know, this little ad slot is just another avenue for communication, so let's stay in touch. Holler at us if you'd like to publicize an event, and know that those dollars will go the distance with the matter-of-fact community. Drop a line if you want to let someone know that you're thinking of them. Hit us up if you've got a product you think that people need to hear about. And if it aligns with our matter of fat values, we'd love to talk about it. We're moving and shaking with you. Matter of fat. Hello, hello. It's your favorite basic base, Soraya. Last episode, <laughs> I talked about my love affair with the pumpkin spice cold brew, and I would like to share some developments on the relationship. Oh. So, a friend of the pod, Sydney, has started a Finstagram. So, this this is misleading, as you may yes. or may not know that a Finstagram or a Finsta account is usually a fake Instagram account where you can post more personal things like 
if it were me, memes um, or other facets of your life that you don't want tied to your main Instagram account. So I don't have one myself. And I want to be clear that Sydney's Finsta is a finance Instagram. Oh, we see what you did. We're going to circle back to the cold (laughs) brew in just a moment. But like, I don't know, dog, the shift in the terminology probably isn't going to take. But Sydney's fat finance is super engaging. It's so great. Mm -hmm. She and her Finsta. Oh, do we like it? <laughs> Inspired me to make my own pumpkin spice cold brew. Okay. So she didn't send me like a link or anything, but she encouraged me to think about how I don't have to spend money on that. Make right? your own. So some coconut half and half pumpkin spice and a little time later, the bank account is feeling a little better. Okay. Pause. Um, <laughs> sorry. In our, in our script, how did you spell out bank? The way that it's spelled. No, tell bank. the people. B A E N K bank. <laughs> Being so basic. That was bank. truly yeah. just for myself. That well, wasn't for the public. Now but everyone knows it's too good. What? Do what you will with that information, everybody. It's pronounced the same bank. Honestly, Sydney makes me feel that way about my bank account. I love that. Yep. I think and that would make her very happy too. Yeah. And this little pumpkin spice cold brew situation, it's not much, but my Capricorn self is here for everyone to get paid and stay paid. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, for me, I'm just really focusing on homework, homework, homework. Mm. Uh, my university has quarter systems, so I'm in the last week of two courses in my grad program. There's a lot to do. You're almost there, though. You're almost yes, done. Yes, yes. Uh, so I'm also evolving in my study looks Oh. Uh, as I've added glasses to my day-to-day routine. So I'm evolving like a Pokemon <laughs> or like maybe so much screen time over the years. I've started to tire these old eyes out. That's probably so, the latter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or maybe I'm a Pokemon. I don't know. Uh, um, so I went to Costco for my glasses mm-hmm. and they were helpful. And I'm pretty sure the salesperson saw an inner hype beast in me. Um, I don't really consider myself a brand con- like a brand conscious con- connoisseur <laughs> or like needing to rep a certain brand. I grew up on Target and Old Navy almost exclusively. So, Amazing. So if you're not familiar hype beast is a person who is on top of all the streetwear brands and wears brands like balenciaga and supreme and abating ape and off-white and gucci etc to stunt and show off and i'm not that person i've got like four pairs of shoes to my name and one of them's crocs a, cu- a couple of them are crocs <laughs> my influence uh-huh. <laughs> however besides that that brand name uh (laughs) this astute costco employee put a pair of square gucci frames down on the counter like very nonchalantly Mm. and i moment momentarily fell in love i fell in love and like what these frames were extra extra expensive and extra showy they had the green and red gucci striping around the outside and obviously like the gucci text on the side oh yeah and like the little metal nose bridge things like the pads had the Gucci emblem engraved on them, which makes me think that if I took the glasses off after wearing them, I'd have like little Gucci name brands on my nose. That's wild. Yeah, it's a lot. So thankfully, I moved to a more cost-effective pair of Balmain specs. Oh, and y'all, if you were watching our Instagram story recently, you saw a picture of our very own Soraya in her new Balmain mm-hmm. glasses. She snapped it. She snapped it. I'm fancy. I'm a Kardashian. What can I say? <laughs> Olivia, come get me. Um, honestly, Costco has some great optometry options and makes yeah. me excited to see the world through a slightly less astigmatized perspective. Welcome. Thank you. Um, but that's all I got. Uh, that's what I got. Get paid and get to studying and look good studying. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 
So I guess, yeah, it is sort of back to school here at Matter of Fat. And even though I'm not in school or working at a college or university anymore, I still try to stay a little connected to the spirit of the season. <laughs> the spirit of the, the back to school yeah, season. Yeah, no, I got it. Here. It was good. So for the last few years, I've been able to help out with an orientation session at Hamlin, our alma mater. Um, and I did that. It was just really fun to be back on campus again. It's always nice to be back there. And also, okay, can we talk about the teens doing back-to-school shopping at Cake? My heart. Several teens, many with their moms, came through to do back-to-school shopping. Ugh, it just, like, makes my heart melt. That makes me feel really cool, actually. That the teens are also shopping at Cake? Yeah, if they're shopping there, my street (laughs) cred is, like, exponentially (laughs) expanding. I love it. Me too. Um, Okay, so aside from back-to-school updates, um, I've been mentioning a bunch on here during Fat Dish that I've been, like, on some panels. And so... Um, one of them took place on September 4th, and the, the other one's actually coming up on the 22nd. So the first one was about sustainability and fashion, and honestly, it went really well. So the whole premise was, you know, sustainability is having a moment, but, like, what's that all about, and how do we get it to stay? And basically, my first comment uh, on the panel was, um, sustainable fashion is actually not really having a moment for plus sizes, and, like, plus-size fashion itself is just only now starting to have a moment, Uh, And of course, sustainable and ethically made brands are leaving plus sizes out. So this is like a truth that I think is often overlooked in these kind of conversations. Mm. So I was really happy that I was able to be present in that to kind of share those things. And what also is very cool is like I feel like the folks in the audience and the, the other panel members were really listening to what I had to say about it. That's awesome. It was a nice conversation. It also left me thinking about lots of stuff like... You know, the sustainability piece of owning a thrift shop wasn't one of the initial draws for me, really, or one of the big ones. Um, But as, like, I have kind of continued on with my business, I really now value it a lot and, like, think that that helps my business kind of values align with my personal values and it just feels really good. I love that, for the most part, shops like mine aren't putting anything new into the world but kind of giving new life to clothing and accessories that are already out there. One of my biggest thoughts and ideas for action from this panel and kind of like my thoughts after are basically just that like we should all just do the best with what we've got, you know? So like as we're able, make choices that are better for the world um, as we can. And like isn't that all that we can really ask for? Yes. I love that advice. I tell my students that all the time and need to think about how it extends to other people and how it ends up creating a sustainable community and system for being like yeah, overall. Yeah, it's beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, what would the fat dish be without a media recommendation? Nothing. Basically so, nothing. Just based- like a tumbleweed blowing in the wind. <laughs> so based on Surya's recommendation from last episode, me, I started, yeah, you, I started watching Four Weddings and a Funeral on Hulu. It is so good. And as we record this, the season finale, like that episode has just been released and is waiting for me to watch. Um, and you to watch too. Yeah. I'm dying. Um would highly recommend this series, uh, of course, because, you know, Surya's always got the good recommendations. I've got a wild array of recommendations. This just happened to be a good one, so that's good. <laughs> it's a great one. Uh-huh. Uh, and on another rec that I'd like to share, I recently blew through Styling Hollywood on Netflix. Okay, I am obsessed. I am so impressed with what JSN Studios is up to. I love Jason, I love Adair, and I love, like, their dynamic together and with their employees. Um, And in an update that will surprise exactly no one, 
watching this well-crafted reality series about a small business working in fashion, I could not help but imagine what my shop's reality TV show could be like one day. I mean, a girl can dream and scheme and plan and, you know. Yes. I already said it last episode, but you got to beef up that IMDb page beyond the NCIS New Orleans episode you were You got to just add a little something new to it. I don't have an IMDb page. I was an extra on NCIS New Orleans. We'll say that story for another day uh, because I think all of our (laughs) updates are covered and we're ready to get into that interview. This episode, we interview Emily Saltzman. Do you remember a few episodes back when we talked about the Fringe Festival and the show Size, which we loved? Well, guess who was there and was a delight to sit with and enjoy an after-show convo with? None other than Emily! Emily emanates a natural warmth and openness. She's so genuine and so easy to talk to. I hope you think so, too. Ooh, we should note that, as you'll be able to tell from parts of this interview, it was recorded several months ago. And yet, so timeless. Emily, we're so happy you're with us here today. Wowee, so excited to be here. Yeah. Okay, so first off, we want to ask you what we ask everyone. Mm -hmm. Tell us your story as a matter of fact. Well, I've been thinking about it and um, made a few notes in my passion planner about it with multicolor uh, marker pens. Uh, Well, I'll just, I'll give a few... Uh, just general general information that I think is helpful. So my awesome. name is Emily Saltzman. I use she and her pronouns. I'm a social worker, sex educator, community organizer. I also am a Libra sun, Aquarius moon, and Taurus rising. Yeah, so like for all you astro queer mos out there. Um, I am queer identified, but I'm also like really into like the word dyke lately and so just like really like bringing that in to lots more conversations just kind of lifting that up feels very powerful to me um i'm also white ashkenazi jew um ashkenazi for folks who are unfamiliar is uh, european descended jews so there's also sephardi jews which are from like north um africa Spain, that sort of general area, mm-hmm. and then um, Mizrahi Jews, which are more of Arab descent and in the Middle East area, and then many other um, words that are connected to different cultural groups. But I think it's important to explain sort of like the this experience with Jewish identity because there's such an intersection with whiteness, and there's an mm-hmm. assumption that every Jew is white mm-hmm. and like we aren't I just happen to be like the typical kind um (laughs) um and yeah I think general story around like as a matter of fact I come from dad's family's Jewish mom's family's Catholic and they both had very different experiences of fatness Mm. like growing up um my parents are both fat um although my mom isn't fat anymore, which mm-hmm. is sort of like an interesting experience. Um, and we, my mom's side of the family was just like very loving and just so over, like just overwhelmed with um, like unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And my grandparents have just a wonderful relationship like that's like 
the the key, like the gold standard, like in oh. my mind, just like they are do- they don't on each other. They're they like stop conversation during like big family events and always make sure to say like this wouldn't be possible without Mary. That's my grandma's name from my uncle, <laughs> from my grandpa. And it's just like a very oh. very sweet loving family. And my mom has eight brothers, so it's like a huge like Catholic oh my gosh. family. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my dad's side of the family had much different experience with their bodies mm-hmm. and um, my grandma consistently like talked about had her own body shame and then just projected it like on my sister and I consistently mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. or over a lot of time and um, so I think I, as like a social worker an activist and sort of someone that thinks about generational trauma I think like you when you hold all of like you you hold the feelings and the experiences of the folks that you came from yeah. and I just feel like really deeply holding that like mm-hmm. sadness and mm-hmm. shame mm-hmm. Uh, around that from them um, but so those are the things that sort of inform like my story around like my own body yeah um, but there's definitely more to that but those are the, the tip of the iceberg what about more recently your relationship with your body and your story yeah um I would say that I'm sort of if we use like school metaphors like I would say I'm maybe like a sophomore or junior in like fat liberation (laughs) (laughs) conversation um I think generally most of my activism has been in like um racial justice spaces Mm -hmm. or like queer spaces Mm -hmm. or things like that or just like bring up like uh how does anti-semitism get connected into those spaces and I, you know, I haven't done as much reading on, like, fat liberation. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know the folks mm-hmm. that I should be reading. You know, uh, Red Trill, watch the movie. Uh, not the movie. The Hulu special. Mm-hmm. Would very be very interested to hear what y'all thought about it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, have followed a lot of folks over the years. And really my fat activism or just really knowledge base increased when I moved back here. Mm, yeah. um, and so I think there's definitely more to learn. But I've been thinking about that a little bit. Um, yeah. I guess I didn't really say anything about, like, me. Like, I'm fat. That's why I'm on the podcast. Um, <laughs> but I I sort of, like, connect that with, like, sort of a tomboy femme identity. Mm-hmm. And also, like, as a... Yeah, I don't know. I I think that I, I don't shy away from saying that I'm fat. But... Um, and I think it's come up more and more in professional spaces, mm-hmm. I think. Um, in, like... I had a um, my first job when I moved back to Minneapolis. I didn't really think that this would come up, but I was working with a lot of um, mostly like middle-aged, like white women, mm-hmm. um, and there was so much food and body talk in the break room, yeah. and and I was so like shocked. I just hadn't experienced that after spending nearly all my twenties in New York City mm-hmm. and having a pretty mono-generational, like, social life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was just very shocked by that because yeah. I hadn't really experienced that since I was a kid. I mean, that's an interesting part because you say when you came back from New York mm-hmm. to the Midwest, you really started thinking about that identity. Is that because of what was happening in the workplace or what else generated that thought? Or 
I lived in Brooklyn for many years, and that's where I sort of, like, came to be. Mm-hmm. Like, I really, like, came out then. I was coming out to myself before then, but just really, like, pushing myself out, not being afraid of that part of my identity. And then also my I got really politicized at that time and was building my career, and that just all of this stuff was, like, exploding all around me. And also was started to be less and less afraid of describing my body in an accurate terms because mm-hmm. um, I think I was always just sort of conditioned that like you just hide certain parts of yourself and you know my mom told me you know we wear certain types of things while also being like unapologetically fat but also like don't wear that stuff mm-hmm. um, so I think I was still trying to unravel parts of that as I became older and also like dating wise like in in Brooklyn, for any of you listening out there, uh, queer Jewish Brooklyn is like vast and it, it's a smorgasbord and everybody is just like, I want to hang out with you and then you and then we'll go <laughs> you and like that's all date together and then let's go to this part. Like it was just really, really awesome. And I experienced some like maybe like a tinge of like fat phobia, but I also experienced a lot of like welcoming, like everybody gets a date mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Like we get to have representation. There's all different types of folks here. Even though I didn't see a lot of other, like, fat queer people that were not femme identified, I think, Hmm. like, that was really lifted up in a lot of ways in in my experience at that time. Um, But I do think that there was um, just a general, like, everybody... There, there, there's not a precursor that you don't have to look this way to date, and I think that's a really powerful, uh, loving experience that we get to have in queer and trans communities um, that, you know, is on its way in other sexual orientations, but I think that's a really powerful piece mm-hmm. of, of what we get to experience. But um, So I think I didn't quite get that it was such a big deal for me to come to terms with that until I was in like my late 20s and early mm-hmm. 30s. But more specifically, I the place where I felt like the most okay with my body and was able to just like let go was um, there is this queer beach in Brooklyn called Jacob Reese. And it's also a topless beach, which so legally, what you can be topless anywhere in New York, but this like specifically was like in the sixties, like this nudist group. And then this gay group came together to like, petition the city to be like we need a place to be yes. naked and gay and so they <laughs> so they made bay one jacob reese speech uh, a gay beach and that like just my brain like overflowed like the first time i went there because all different types of bodies different types of gender expressions gender identities different fashions different skin colors like hair like people with hair everywhere or nowhere i mean it was awesome it's just it was a really incredible experience. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to wear a shirt. Why would I do that? Like the joy of having like, you know, bare chest in the ocean and mm-hmm. sunshine is so wonderful. And there were so many people that looked like me or didn't look like me that were just like, I'm just living my life. Mm-hmm. We get to live our lives here. Oh, I love that. Um, and I think the idea of being in New York in this giant 
place with so many different types of people, no one gives a crap about what you're doing. They're Mm -hmm. just trying to get to work or they're trying to meet their friends or they're just trying to call back their doctor for an appointment. Like they don't care what you're doing. So as long as you're not in their space, I mean, of course, there's harassment and other things that happen. But I I there's just so many other things that people are dealing with on a regular basis that I found that being just a number in that Mm -hmm. space also felt really liberating because I wasn't the only I wasn't the only different kind of person. Mm. So, and and Jacob Reese was really like an exciting experience with mm-hmm. that example. Thanks for sharing that. That sounds so cool. Mm-hmm. And also sounds very different than what life feels like here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. It just, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It feels mm-hmm. like the, it just seems like, I want, maybe not the exact opposite, but it just sounds, it feels very different here than mm-hmm. how you've described. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine that might just feel, yeah, awesome to be. A little bit, like, less conspicuous mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. that formative time, too. Totally. Yeah. Where you're trying to figure your, out your identity and who you are and mm-hmm. see yourself in the world completely. Mm-hmm. So what does that feel like coming back to the Midwest? I would say that I don't really think I knew what it was going to be like until I got here. Mm-hmm. Um, that upon reflection, you know, my adolescence, I, I was really just trying to make my, myself small most of the time, yeah. Uh, yeah. whether that was because of my body or, you know, I, I was, I received a lot of intense anti-Semitism growing up in the, in like Minnetonka, Chanhassen area. And so to remember all of that by coming back, I think I just really blocked it out. Mm-hmm. I just really forgot that that was happening because I was living in this sort of utopia that was like dirty and smelly all the time <laughs> and like really expensive. But in many ways, I just sort of blocked out that time. And so when I came back here, I I think I, I got sort of stuck in like 13-year-old me mm-hmm. that I was – I literally had to go to my office was in the same suburb that I grew up in. Mm. I was driving in the same and I was like, oh, this is really intense. And sometimes I would go to these monthly meetings that were in a building right next to my old elementary school. And I I know that that seems for those of us who grew up here and stayed here or for anybody that's grown up and stayed in the place where they grew up, it might not feel so novel. But for me, it was just constantly remembering all of these things that brought a lot of challenging um, memories Mm -hmm. and like body memories. And, you know, we think about like trauma and things live in our bodies. And so I just had Mm -hmm. a lot of physical connection to those um, times. But I, um, I do think there, like I met Kat, like we met pretty soon after I had moved back. And so having like a lot of, really powerful fat folks doing the work here. I was like, oh, like I can talk about some of this stuff with other folks that are here and also people that fat activism is a big part of their lives and also intersectional activism is also a big part of their lives. So it wasn't just one note. And um, so to be part of that and to sort of watch that grow and be part of the Twin Cities Fat Group on Facebook, like just really having a space where folks were engaging in that dialogue, knowing that that space existed really allowed for those things to open up. And it also allowed me to reflect on my time Mm -hmm. in New York in a different way, too, that I didn't really have that. I didn't have really any fat queer friends. I mean, just a very small amount, but we didn't really talk about this stuff so much. Mm -hmm. Like it would come up every once in a while. 
Um, but not to the extent that I talk about it now yeah. or have folks talk about it now. Um, but yeah, it's really different here. Like, yeah. I, I think in, in New York, there is a few, like, my experience at least like there was a few like other like fat queer people and it was kind of this novelty it was like oh yeah like you're the you can um prove your radicalness by like dating like a fat queer person because mm. there was just a handful of us i think in that i remember that i was conscious of and then coming back here you see fatness expressed so much more and so, and um that i it's normalized, but also has a different tinge, I think, to it, that there's a lot of, like, um, some friends of mine in New York, you know, there's a lot of uh, disdain or assumptions made about the Midwest, the flyover zone, mm-hmm. a lot of conversations about, well, what is, even happens there? Mm-hmm. And there was also a lot of negative language that people were saying about, like, uh, oh, everybody in the Midwest is fat, or um, that's that's what happens if you stay in the Midwest or mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of hard to come back to that and then also reconcile with what does that mean about me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean about my body mm-hmm. um, and my existence? So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think those were sort of the, the pieces that I, I picked out at that time. And I have... I have more community now. I have more people that I can go to, like specifically um, one of my best friends, Alana, who's also Alana, yeah, who's also like a fat femme-ish, queer Jewish person. Like we have uh, that friendship has really created this foundation for supportive, solid, like solidarity love while also sort of pushing each other on our own BS. That, like, if we're <laughs> Which like, is the best you, kind of friendship. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, it's so great. So we talk a lot about dating and we talk a lot about how, how um, we can support each other in different spaces and just like really getting down to that sort of nitty gritty challenges. So that, so that has been like really great. Also at the same time, as we were mistaken for like sisters and and siblings all the time hmm. and so we were just like so have you literally never seen like a white chubby jewish person like ever <laughs> like it was it was such yeah. a strange experience um to have i mean it's not the worst it's like i love her but also like what is going on for people when we can't differentiate what's going on mm-hmm. that we have this one idea of what yeah. certain kinds of people look like happens a lot to me as well that people just like think that I'll look like someone and I think it's just because it's another fat person with glasses mm-hmm. yeah. you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. well, like people have mistaken mm-hmm. me and Sydney before my assistant at what? the shop right oh my gosh like we, yeah now we both have dark hair we both have glasses like come on y'all mm-hmm. we don't look alike at mm-hmm. all you know mm-hmm. well and I mean it shows up I mean in like racialized situations also it's like when w- people are mistaking like two African-American folks mm-hmm. or like two folks of Asian descent I mean it's like always it's just a very interesting dynamic that what kind of what kind of tapes are playing in our head or what kinds of things are we not noticing because we we're not paying attention to the differences yeah so yeah I mean it's it's complex is what it Mm -hmm. is it comes Mm -hmm. down to definitely yeah because I remember meeting you like right after you had the fat luck at oh your yeah! House. Oh, a couple yeah. years ago, that was the first uh-huh. one. That was uh-huh. fun. So yeah, when you were talking about like coming back and like having the space to talk with other fat folks, that was brand new for me as well. 
And it made such a big difference because like you said, it was easier for me to honor other like racial identities Mm -hmm. or sexual identities and have like general conversations with lots of different folks. Mm -hmm. Everybody was talking about that. Mm -hmm. But then the fat identity piece didn't come until much Mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. But cool that I had language to support that too and Mm -hmm. dive into it a little bit more. So Mm -hmm. sophomore level, I mean, (laughs) that's I like that spectrum. I might need to think through that metaphor where I'm at in that, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think it just also shows up to when we're thinking about um, like accommodations for even activist spaces. You know, I think about it a lot in some of these grassroots sort of punk spaces or even not punk, but just, you know, we're creating communal things. We're creating things out of nothing. We're trying to imagine a space where we all can be. And oftentimes we're getting free spaces or getting spaces that are donated to us or, and so thinking about um, accessibility, which Mm -hmm. is a big piece of the conversation. So folks have different abilities and in certain ways we haven't quite gotten there with body size yeah. Whether it's chairs or different spaces or assuming that everybody can sit on the floor or, you know, we're just not really quite there yet. And Agreed. that that makes it sort of challenging. And and specifically coming back to Minneapolis, where there is just actually more space here. Mm-hmm. So when we would do activist work in New York, you just got what you got and you often didn't have it wasn't equidistant for most people. Mm-hmm. You would re- have to travel a uh, quite long distance. Um, and, but here we often have more space or someone's using their home or just, you know, because of access to, to that sort of thing. But we also haven't quite figured out also the intersection with a Jewish identity, mm-hmm. which I think has been an interesting one for me that, the events that we would have in New York where we were trying our best to have all of these different pieces. Because in racial justice work, my experience was that the majority of the white people that were participating in racial justice work also happened to be Jewish or queer or both. Mm -hmm. And so that was really part of the politic. And then here, I've noticed that there is more and more things that are happening, you know, on Fridays and Saturdays, even though I'm Mm -hmm. not an observant Jewish person. But just really not sort of relating to like the larger scale and like just to like put it out to you two like the I forget the person's name but the fat sex therapist that y'all are bringing it's like the first night of Passover when the event is happening so I was like ah bum bum yeah that's a shop thing that's not connected to the podcast yeah totally but like Mm -hmm. but just generally like in this in the sphere it's like oh okay like how do we like think about how how all of those things intersect and also scheduling stuff is really hard. Mm -hmm. Like finding a time for everybody is really hard. And then what does it mean to have nothing ever scheduled on a Friday or Saturday when most in, in the world that we live in, most folks work Monday through Friday, Mm -hmm. nine to five generally. And so how do we think about, how do we complicate all of those different pieces, Mm -hmm. especially for those of us that are not really like observant, but also care about, certain pieces yeah, people and who are. Yeah. yeah so I don't know it's just this, that's that's a specific Minnesota experience that I've had since moving back that the um out this is a very like Christian Nordic mm-hmm. <laughs> Christian Nordic space yeah and um having to be reminded that oh like uh, sc- yeah. not every school is closed on every Jewish or Muslim holiday and not every mm-hmm. you know yeah. people aren't as aware or so it just sort of reminding folks consistently in spaces has been 
a, just a new level of conversation, I think. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. No, especially for anybody who's listening to this, too, because hopefully we're talking to a lot of folks who are considering what accessibility means on a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is really helpful and Mm -hmm. will probably stick in some folks' minds for some time. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, it it runs a gamut. I mean, there's just so many different ways that we're thinking about things, and it, it shows up in my work a lot. So I work for an organization that does... Um, LGBTQ inclusivity work in the Jewish community specifically, Mm -hmm. so nationally. And we talk a lot about security in spaces because when you're entering most of most Jewish community centers across the country, you have to show an ID and you have to do all this stuff. Yeah. So there's like sort of intensive security measures Mm -hmm. and they've become even more intense since the tree of life synagogue shooting. And, um, And so we're really trying to bring the Jewish community into a different space with this conversation because when you show an ID in a space, there's an assumption that you have one. Mm -hmm. There's an assumption that your name and your gender marker on that ID is what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And so that intersection of how do we stay safe and also, how do we honor that an ID isn't always the best way to figure out if someone is legit, for lack of a better yeah. word, mm-hmm. and keeping tabs? Like, what is the actual purpose of scanning that ID? Um, so so that's something that we sort of are trying to reconcile in our own work yeah. around those different levels of things as well. Mm-hmm. But, Yeah. So something you and I talk about pretty often um, is dating. And I know you have lots of thoughts about dating here and maybe differences between New York and here, which you've already touched on a bit. But give us give us the good word. Tell us what you think about dating. <laughs> Tell the thoughts totally. that are going yeah. on about that. This is actually very fun because I um, – so it's very nice that um, Kat is so wonderful and she also has a shop. So whenever something happens or feel like, you know what – I really appreciate Kat's opinion about this. I can literally, I know exactly where she is, so I can just go, which I'm, which I'm sure other people do take advantage of as well. Um, So, um, so we've talked a lot about this over, over the years and, you know, I have found that, gosh, I, as I was saying before, you know, when I was in New York in, in my twenties, there was just this idea of, the assumption is people are non-monogamous, assumption that people are sort of dating around, that, you know, we're all part of, like, queer family, so most of our friends we may have, like, hooked up with or, like, we're best friends with our exes or things like that. So there's just, like, a lot of, like, mingling mm-hmm. and um, that sort of thing. And I, I've been thinking a lot about um, past relationships and how that interacted with, like, my own idea of my body and their response to that. And... I think I was always like pretty apprehensive about making the first move or being in relationships with folks that I did not know immediately a hundred percent that they were into me. Mm. And um, I think especially as a queer person too, there's some fear around that. And my, my first girlfriend, it was a, um, Funny, we all. I moved to New York to do a Jewish social justice fellowship, and we all lived in the same house mm-hmm. communally, and it was this fun experience. So there's 12 of us living in a house, Dang. and um, and so that experience 
was really fun and opened me up to a lot of different things. But I think the relationship piece was how I was, I think in the thinking about the intersecting identities conversation around that is we, we started dating secretly. It was very fun. We were best friends. And then we started sharing it with other people. And I had met her parents a couple of times before that, but I, um, as her friend, and then later when she was coming out and it was this whole big thing, and I felt this deep sense of dread to meet them again. Mm. And they had always been very kind to me, and that really shifted as soon as they found out that we were together. Mm. And I always thought it was because, oh, I wasn't... I wasn't pretty enough and I was like too fat to be her girlfriend and most likely it was because I was a woman. It could have been anybody. And so, but I got in that cycle of, of that sort of place. And I, I think that that sort of trying to eventually get to a place where that wasn't there, that that tape was got quieter and quieter Mm -hmm. as we continued to date um, and date other people and things like that. But you know, it. there's so many, like, wonderful people that have created spaces for us to feel as loved and as cared for and in, in our bodies and outside of in the world. So um, I just, like, that particular story sort of sat with me yeah. as, like, that was, that was this, this challenging moment. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I do think that the difference in in dating here and dating there was that I found that in New York there were always a lot of options and no one was shamed for not being in a partnership and you were in scenarios where there was a lot of single people or there was a lot of different types of people Mm -hmm. and different relationships and um and never felt upset that it wasn't happening you know that a that a monogamous or full time full time yeah. relationship <laughs> if that if that makes sense um and i think moving back here that shifted mm. uh whether that was because of my age you know i was 31 when i moved back here uh or if it was just the general vibe in minnesota around relationship that most people were in um, serious partnerships. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks were married, had kids, even if they were queer in the queer and trans community. And so that was a really big shift for me. And I think there was a lot of fear that like, oh my gosh, like everyone's already dated. Like everyone's already mm-hmm. booed up. Like h- how am I supposed to do this in addition to like having that other layer of what are folks politics around bodies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like how to find those different places. But um Anyway, we've talked a lot about my current girlfriend, yes. who is really great, um, and she, you know, is like really in this too, and is an academic and an activist, and so really being able to talk with her about some of this stuff, and we're on our own journey on how that sort of shows up in our relationship and what that, how that works. But I think the the piece that comes up for me around it is like I'm also a sex educator and like very like sort of loud about that and I love talking about sexuality and like being in in the space and I think you know there's also that other level of wanting to receive 
PDA and being adored in public and all of this, all of this stuff. But also at the same time, when you're with someone who's of the same gender that you are or receives like those relationships still aren't given the same power and support in the Mm. world. And so having to negotiate, is this space safe to express the type of affection that we want with each other? Um, And also like wanting to receive that as a fat person too, that like I get to receive Mm -hmm. that love. Yeah. And also we need to do it safely. So I think that sort of conversation has been happening like a lot to just try to figure that out and like want to be careful and thoughtful Mm -hmm. in those spaces. So, and it's really great. And it's like been really great. And she's (laughs) really wonderful. And um, so, yeah. So Emily, if people want to find you or like the work you're doing or what you're up to, how can folks hear more from you? Oh, cool. Well, you know, I have a website. Okay. Mm. For my professional for my professional work. Um so I do um training and facilitation around a variety of topics, but mostly LGBTQ inclusion, how to talk about like race with white people. And I've also done a lot of trainings for parents on how to talk to their kids about sex and relationships. Cool. So that's that's my like personal work on my own. So my website is emilyashersaltzman.com. Um, we'll link that in our show notes. <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. It's like, please give me, cut me some slack on the actual website. Um, it's, it's, it's like on its way to like be being like a little bit more vibrant and then I have a Facebook which is kind of boring so um the gram the gram tell people about your gram. the gram is also private so oh, never mind terrible yeah. suggestion no on it's all, it's it's cool it's like you know but I follow like a lot of awesome stuff so it's it's confusing I kind mm-hmm. of have a little bit of a private social media I'm not I'm not friends if I don't know you yeah for the most part. that's kind of the deal mm-hmm. the, like I really love being in activist spaces and like figuring that out and like seeing people doing the online activism mm-hmm. is really important to me and like watching and filling my feed with all these different things and also like I just don't want like a random cousin maybe following me because I used to post a lot of like things that felt very personal mm-hmm. and just don't want everybody. That's real. You know, to yeah. That's totally, that's totally but appropriate. Yeah. Respect. You're totally. in great company. You yeah. are in great cool, cool, cool. company. With <laughs> great. <Syria. laughs> awesome. Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. But you have a personal website. So, I mean, who even needs to follow you on the on the gram? I you mean, you know, it's not super updated, but, you know, it has a very <laughs> nice headshot that my friend Shuli took of me. Um, so, you know, there you go. Amazing. I love it. We're, we're working on it. We're working on it. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. And Emily, thank you for telling us your story as, as a, a matter, matter of fact. Sure. so enjoyed that conversation with Emily. Yes, what a gem. And we have to share some updates. Emily was recently promoted to Associate Director of Education and Training at Cachette. Like she mentioned in her interview, Cachette works for the full equality of all LGBTQ Jews. Emily also shared that she started working from the coven semi-regularly, and it's been awesome, especially because she gets to chit-chat with Amy Siegel, who you might remember from a previous episode. Oh, I love that. Emily also shared that she won a Professional Development Award as a social entrepreneur from the Jewish Women's Foundation of New York. Amazing. Oh, go Emily. Okay, and in another major accomplishment, Emily reported back from a recent 
recent trip celebrating the wedding the wedding rather of one of her partner's family members. She says she successfully took photos of every wedding guest for the Polaroid guest book at Jen's brother's wedding and LOL was mistaken for a wedding venue employee because she was so welcoming and professional. Not surprising in the least, to be honest. Oh my goodness. And um, you know, I think that's a good way to close it out. Okay. Now on to Dirt, Dirt and, and Discourse. discourse. It's time for the Dirt and Discourse. This is where we dive into the excitement and discomfort around relevant pop and cultural happenings. I don't know if you've all been paying attention to our fave fat songstress Lizzo, but she's been doing all things excellently. Oh, lately. yeah. This includes topping the Billboard Music Charts number one spot with Truth Hurts two years after it was released. Performing at the VMAs with a big old twerking inflatable butt made here in our great state. Minnesota's own. Uh-huh. Championing fat girl fall and... Less recently, calling out the problematic use of spirit animal flawlessly on Twitter. So much style, so much grace. So someone took a screen grab of her response to an admirer on Twitter in 2018. So the the person tweeted initially, at Lizzo is my spirit animal. Eek. Um, but our patron saint of fat womanhood responded with, quote, the term spirit animal is offensive to First Nation and Indigenous tribes, but look, girl, I love that you feel like I'm your inner self. Love yourself. Moi. Kissy emoji. So great. Excellent. Yes. And I know that a lot of celebrities and artists have had stuff they posted a while back come to haunt them. But I'm here for the uncovering and excavation of excellent choices being made. Like, yes. this is excellent. This example of casual, harmful language got us thinking about what else we've been saying that could use a long think and a good look in a thesaurus. This isn't a censorship thing either. Um, if you want to call me a snowflake because I consider the impact of my language on others and want to leverage my English degree <laughs> by choosing words a little bit more carefully, you know, go for it. Yes. And like, okay, so right, if you're a snowflake, then I'm one too. Because it, like, so for instance, when folks talk about being like politically correct, like it's a bad thing. Um, What? Being thoughtful and compassionate with your language is something to be avoided. Mm -hmm. If being a decent human and working to be better to others through the language I use is a problem problem then I don't know I don't know if we're gonna really I'm gonna really enjoy engaging with someone who thinks that yeah definitely so something that we started thinking about last year was the term spooky as we ramp up into Halloween time everything becomes spooky but since we've learned more information about the etymology of the word we've started to reconsider using it in everyday language as an aside, please tell me I'm not the only one who consistently confuses etymology and entomology. We're talking about words here, not bugs, people. Mm -hmm. And as the reigning state champion of etymology <laughs> from high school science team, I wow. was the captain. No big deal. <laughs> I know about the transition from bugs to words. Got that English background. Amazing. Um, but anyways, back to the point at hand. Uh, NPR's podcast, Code Switch, tackles like how race and ethnicity and cultural play out from a journalistic perspective. Mm -hmm. And then NPR then wrote an article based off of a Code Switch listener's question about the etiquette of spooky. TLDR, spooky is related to ghosts, but became a derogatory term for black folks. And I don't cite Urban Dictionary often, but if there's something racist, it'll be on there. And lo and behold, spook and spooky is listed. Mm. So something that's scary or othered or monstrous is tied to black people. That's just insidious. Isn't it, though? And, like, what a great word choice, I might add. Mm. Uh, insidious, sinister, ghostly, ghastly, eerie, uncanny, and earthy, bizarre, terrifying, chilling, creepy, spine-tingling. Okay, thesaurus. Yes. 
I mean, as much as I love Halloween and the intro to 30 Rock's seminal holiday classic, Werewolf Marbitzvah, which is like a whole another dirt discourse unto itself, there are so many delectable words to explain this time of year and the absolutely wild behavior that I would ascribe the word spooky to otherwise. Uh, what other words or phrases have been on your radar, Kat? Oh, man. I feel like there are so many. Can we talk about a few? Let's do it. So it's our podcast. Let's do it. Let's kick this off with use of the word tribe to Ugh. define anything other than an ethnic or cultural tribe of people uh, in Native American, indigenous, and or African cultures. Yeah. This word is not appropriate for folks to use to refer to their friends, their people, or yes, even their group of like-minded lady bosses. Choose a different word. Woof. Um, oh, one more I'd like to share is the peanut gallery. And this is something that I actually only recently stopped saying because I was ignorantly oblivious to its racist undertones. So the phrase intends to reference hecklers or critics in the crowd, but actually the peanut gallery names a section in theaters, usually the cheapest and worst seats where many black people sat during the era of vaudeville. Oof. So, yeah, I stopped saying that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and do you know about the rule of thumb? Yeah. So it refers to, I mean, I hear people saying this all the time. But like, it ref- yes, I know like of it, it as a phrase. Yes, yes, yes as a rule <laughs> so, of thumb, yes. Well, but the rule of thumb historically has referred to the idea that if a man beat his wife with a stick, it had to be thinner than the circumference of his thumb. What? Gross. Let's ditch this phrase, too. And okay, yes, I get it. Like words change and evolve. Meanings change and grow. But if someone tells me that words I'm using are hurtful or harmful, especially if my words are negatively impacting folks in marginalized communities, like I want to change my language. Mm -hmm. And there are oodles of other examples that we could cover. But I want to revisit what we started with Ari Lizzo's tweet about using the term spirit animal. Mm. I don't use it, but it is used everywhere around me. And I have an example of a scenario in which I tried to model or shift the understanding of it. Um, And this is not a comprehensive response in any way, shape or form. But I was really glad that I thought slightly quickly on my feet and decided to not go with the flow of what everybody else uh, was saying or how they were using it. So what happened? Yeah. Within the last year, I was going through a leadership and professional development program. And it was a great opportunity to connect with other like minded professionals and engage in conversations around leadership. And I don't know, you probably guessed it, (laughs) professional development. Um, But we would have sessions where different leaders in the organization would present topics on developing people having hard conversations and other topics that were really thoughtful and just brought us all to the table to have a good conversation. So per usual, every session started with us sharing names, job roles, and you guessed it, an icebreaker. Of course. How can we not? <laughs> um, so in this scenario, we were asked to share our spirit animal. Oof. Oof, oof, oof. So it's kind of like what we talked about last episode about casual fat phobia and not being prepared. Mm. I forgot that my experience is not universal, right? And uh, like I'm in a professional setting, using the concept and terminology of spirit animals is inappropriate to me. So we as professionals don't engage in appropriate behavior. Not the case because not everybody knows this or not everybody understands that. Mm. So we went around the room and everyone shared their answer. And I was I was sweating a little bit. There were people here who are good business contacts and maybe my boss someday or may help me reach a professional goal or just mm. like might be a good like friend or relationship who yeah. knows what that looks like so what if my response comes off as antagonistic or inappropriate based on the fact that everyone else doesn't seem to have a problem with it 
Uh, I'm also one of the very few women of color in the group. So what does that mean for me to be the one to speak out about something like this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like that wild mental math that any marginalized person has to do in a situation to figure out the different permutations of negative outcomes. Like what happens if I do this? What happens if I do this? So granted, my physical and mental health wasn't on the line here. So it wasn't that scary. But by the time I ran all these calculations, it was my turn to speak. (laughs) I was definitely that kid in class who if you have to read from the book, like I would just count ahead to see what my section or paragraph and was going to be and read it a few out, times. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that's where I was at. Um, so I said my name, my job, and then shared that, you know, I don't personally believe in spirit animals or have a cultural connection to that. But um, uh, when I was traveling in Kenya this year, <laughs> I met a giraffe named Stacy and she had gorgeous eyelashes and her heart can pump two gallons of oxygenated blood per minute because of how tall her neck is. Wow. What a nerd, right? But like, That's great though. I basically turned into that kid from Jerry Maguire that spouts random facts. Like, the human head is eight pounds. The kid with the little glasses. Little glasses, like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I turned into him. And like, we didn't address this any further in that meeting. And I wasn't really prepared to do it at that mm-hmm. point. But hopefully, this gave pause to others in the room to consider why I said that. Also, it was good practice for me to feel a little bit more audacious the next time this comes up because it probably will. Yeah, I feel like situations like this are great just like for that, like practice, right? You can mm-hmm. think about, okay, I did this this time. What will I do next time, you know? Mm-hmm. And like to that point, I hate to ask, but like what has this looked like for you, Kat? Where has this come up in your life? Okay, so I actually, unfortunately, um, have an example based on the same word. Oh, cool. So recently I was asked to answer some profile questions for something I was involved with, and to my shock and horror, that was included as a question. I was asked what my spirit animal was um, on this profile that I was like filling out virtually. So I answered the other questions, but for that one, I wrote in that I, or like typed in, that I wasn't comfortable answering it. I also asked that they consider removing the question, and then I linked to an article about why nice. they might want to do that. That's really nice to add some, you know, citations to it. And well, and it was like written form, so it was like easier, mm-hmm. right? I could like, and also like I had a moment to like think like, okay, how will I respond? Which like was something that you maybe didn't have as much in I that moment. I should just carry around articles that are pertinent to my <laughs> life with me everywhere I go. <laughs> So, um, so I like typed that in, and then when I sent the questions for the profile back over email, in the body of the email, I, I referenced this again. I was like, hey, I made a note about this question. I hope you'll take a look at it. So the agency um, that they were working with, like the person I was emailing, kind of corresponding with, did respond to me and apologized. And then later when I saw that person in person, um, I confirmed that she had actually like brought up to the other folks what I had emailed about, um, and she said she did. So... I don't know for sure if they, like, made any changes moving forward, um, but they definitely, like, did for my situation. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't include that. Um, And I don't know. But I I, I don't know what came of it, but I do feel like I did what I could in the scenario um, and was happy that not only did I, like, chat a minute over email, but then, like, followed up in person to kind of, like, show that I was serious about it, you know? For sure. And I mean, Lizzo's response is obviously the standout here. Oh, clearly. Yeah. But we think the most important thing is that we all respond as we're able in ways that make sense to us. It's our shared job to speak up and educate ourselves about this instead of those just directly impacted by it. Right, right, right. Matter. Matter.
thought. Thanks for thinking more about words we want to remove from our vocab in the dirt and discourse. For engaging in our conversation with Emily. And diving into the fat dish with us. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. Like, truly, we so appreciate yes. the reviews and ratings. It makes the podcast world go round. See you back here in two weeks for another episode of Matter, Matter of, of Fat. fat. Okay, that wasn't that punny, though. We're not a pun pun machine. I can't just pull them out whenever you want. I'm a pun machine.